Welcome to Black and Green Podcast number eight. My name is Kevin Tucker. I am your host. Uh, it is May 5th, 2018 right now. And uh, quick order of business. Uh, the looks like the podcast is going to be on the Channel Zero uh, Anarchist Podcast Network. So hopefully that's going to be happening soon and that'll help make it a lot easier to get the podcast. Uh, as of right now, if you're looking for past episodes or anything like that, uh, the best way to get it, I put it all on archive and then the archive of what's on archive is on the webpage blackandgreenreview.org backslash, uh, I think it's like B ampersand G podcast. But if you just go to blackandgreenreview.org, there's a tab for podcast. And that is where I have cleverly hidden all past episodes. So uh, if you need to get caught up, if this is your first time listening or if you've missed any, again, this is episode eight. They are all there. Of course, you don't want to miss it. Uh, so I've uh, been a little bit behind. I've been working very heavily on my book of Gods and Country, The Domestication of Our World, which is about the origins of religion, patriarchy, and nationalism, and then juxtaposing that with the realities of colonization um, and conquest in terms of missionaries. Uh, so it's um, it's heavy. It's a, a lot of very difficult things to go through and read, but things that we need to be very aware of and obviously things that I consider exceptionally important. Uh, and I'm hoping that, that that will be out this summer. Uh, we shall see. But uh, if you keep listening, I'll have more updates on it and I'm going to continually be discussing aspects of it on the show. And tonight is no exception. Uh, so there's been a bit of discussion going on uh, relating to the idea of rewilding and white privilege. Uh, and some of that discussion came, well, a lot of that discussion kind of started when Daniel Vitalis and Arthur Haynes did, uh, Danny's old podcast, Rewild Yourself or whatever it's called, um, was called, I guess it's done now. Uh, and in that episode, I think it might've been the last episode or whatever. I, I never listened to this shit. So, um, they they had this discussion in which they were basically saying that white privilege doesn't exist and all the shit. And naturally, that stirred a lot of negative connotations people had about rewilding, in particular about uh, rewilding as it's being shown right now by experts and as people are kind of getting uh, standard, almost popper, whatever mainstream kind of acknowledgement of it or whatever is going on there, that whole perception of it, which obviously in a lot of ways it is very much uh, about kind of like white privilege urban deal, but we'll get back to that. But um, Sam Sycamore and his good life revival podcast interviewed people, Peter Michael Bauer, urban scout um, and Pete's interview is really good. Uh, and that kind of discussed it a little bit more and it's been talked about more in relation to that. Um, it's something I want to weigh on a little bit more. But unfortunately, the segue for that uh, is going to be a little bit roundabout, and that's where I'm going tonight. So I plan on discussing that, and uh, it's turned out that the baseline for that discussion is really fucked up. So uh, the main aspect of this podcast is going to be relatively recent news. So there is a Peruvian uh, medicine woman named Olivia Arvalo Lomas. Uh, she was 
81 years old. Uh, so she was killed uh, sometime, I believe, in April. So I know that the the main article I've seen on this is from April 26th. Uh, I believe all everything that happened within it happened relatively recently. And this has been kind of making the rounds. It's probably not news. Uh, and uh, it, I, I'd hope that people have heard about it because this story is fucked up. And as we're going to see going through all this stuff, it really touches on a lot of these issues and just the nature of conversation, the nature of, of civilization, and really just the ways that all of us fucked up people who are trying to deal with the consequences of, the consequences of domestication uh, in various ways falter. And that's where I think a lot of this rewilding sales pitch or wild yourself trademark kind of shit is coming from. And this whole discussion being built around like, you know, rewilding is a, a hipster trend instead of any kind of thing that could be uh, liberatory or liberating or, or part of a resistance movement, which is where, you know, it, re- it really has come from uh, in a lot of ways, or at least, you know, we, we hijacked it quite a while ago as green anarchists and, that's where we've taken it. So this particular story revolves around a Canadian named Sebastian Woodroff. Uh, and Sebastian was a 36-year-old. He had a four-year-old son and lived in Canada. Um, had a YouTube channel called Sacred Circle. He talked about a lot of the kind of things that I think anybody in the rewilding world or anything like it would, would relate to. Uh, he's got a video on picking chanterelles, uh, some stuff on plant medicine, picking mushrooms of the sun. Uh, but he had this video from 2013 that he used to launch an Indiegogo project. Apparently, the site has been Indiegogo took that site down, but apparently he got about two thousand dollars or something like that. And his whole idea was that he wanted to get into um, addiction recovery and trying to find more holistic ways of dealing with it. Uh, in particular, he got really into the idea of ayahuasca, um, as is a huge trend right now. Uh, and it's very, very problematic. Um, but he, he got the idea that he was going to get this kind of salvation through that. So he went to Peru. Um, and I'm going to get to some of the details in a minute, but just to give the overarching kind of landscape here for the story, uh, he went to Peru, he got the money he was going, he, he took this retreat. Um, he found uh, Lumas, who is a, a medicine woman, and she, he was, I guess the, the story goes, that he kind of had changed a little bit after the ayahuasca, which it, it is a heavy drug. I mean, it's a hallucinogen. Um, there is a cultural context for taking it, and there's also a cultural context by which a bunch of fucking first world douchebags are going down to Peru and going down to all these areas to take it, and also even just going to New York city and having these ayahuasca shamans and things like that. All more stuff we'll get into in a minute here. But, um, so he, the story is not horribly clear. It sounds like he was insisting that she give him these songs and she sang him these songs. There's uh, traditional medicine songs, healing songs, shaman songs. And after that, uh, he shot her and killed her. Now the people there knew that it was him that did it. Uh, it sounds like there was no question about it. And I'm sure having a Canadian in these small towns, it's, it's not going to be too much of a question. And you know, you can, you can really 
extrapolate a lot about this if you have read anything about the frontier mentality, um, which again we'll get to in a second here. But so uh, they knew that he had done, he had killed her, uh, and they had put up posters in her her town saying this is who killed her. Action needs to be taken. Uh, it leads to a mob within the town lynching this guy, dragging him, and then he was buried in a shallow grave. So that's where we come in with this story in terms of the media and its coverage and everything like that. As a Canadian goes down to Peru, um, may or may not have been egregious in what he was expecting from these people, uh, in particular this woman. And then he killed this woman and... You know, here we have the savage mob violence and they killed him. And so the narrative is about his murder, not about the shaman that he killed, which piggybacks on a lot of issues going back to the entire history of civilization. And uh, the biggest one obviously being hopefully the most obvious, which is the nature of colonization, the nature of frontier violence. And it becomes kind of a question that, you know, the, the degree to which history has made it possible for people to think that we live in this linear time and that we live in this time where conquest happens or like even just domestication was a, an event. It was a thing that happened. People switched from hunting gathering to horticultural to agricultural, blah, blah, blah. And they, they led to industrialism, modernity. Like there's this, this linear time and this is where it is. And everything that's happened has happened. And the the entire notion of historical time is a massive subject that I'm not going to be able to cover in this this issue, but or this sorry this episode. But that is kind of at the heart of this, and this this idea that civilization does what it does by giving this kind of sense of history that we have deserve we've gotten where we deserve to be, and we've also moved forward. We can't go back, um, which. Again, there's a whole lot of issues involved in every one of these points, and that's kind of how it works. It's a totality. But, you know, we we get this sense that a lot of the worst is over, and that because, you know, you can go to some of these villages and you can go to some of these reservations in, in very remote places, places that don't necessarily have running water, and there will be people there with a cell phone that have Facebook um, that, you know, it's, it's over and done with. This, this isn't an ongoing reality. And of course, it's a fucking ongoing reality. Of course, this is still going on. And you can have these kind of outposts where a white dude from Canada or from the United States or anywhere in Europe can go to these remote areas, even through tourism, and just fucking go nuts. And they can, they can have these kind of God complex, you know, realizations or whatever it is that they're having. But the entire idea, the entire sense of this white male civilized entitlement is at the core of this. This is a person who, you know, for all of his great intentions felt he can go out to this culture and they have this way of healing and they get it. You know, he really feels that these people get it. These shamans have this worldview and this understanding and this experience that makes it so that they can heal people. And why shouldn't they heal us? I mean, we're entitled to everything, right? I mean, they don't have their own lives. They don't have their own culture. And then there's retreats and things like that that make it possible for us to have access to these people. And then they're going to spin the entire thing and say, you're helping out this culture if you come down here and take this, if you take this knowledge and 
you know, fuck it, they're shamans, but you, you can come down here for a two-week retreat and you'll get the same bit of knowledge. This guy can come down here, learn everything he needs to know about ayahuasca from one retreat, take the songs, and then he's going to be the fucking savior. He's going to be the white savior that comes back up to America and says, by God, I've got it. I've got the ayahuasca. I'm going to heal people's addictions. We're not going to have to deal with any of the underlying stuff. Here's our drug that's going to solve the other drugs that we took often from the same areas. And we're going to make people better. I'm going to take my wounded self. I'm going to take the wounds that I've incurred as a civilized person that I've seen because this guy's dad, I think was an alcoholic or something like that. I, I don't care, but it was something along those lines. Um, you know, he wanted to save his dad and it kind of comes down to this complex where it's just so wounded and we can identify with this because we're coming from this culture that we can say this guy meant well. And if you look through the comments and usually whenever somebody's involved in a murder or something like that, it seems to be the case that a social media accounts usually get taken down trying to get rid of all the obvious paper trail. And as we've seen with the Cambridge Analytica stuff, as we've seen with everything else that's been coming out, you know, there's reasons why the amount of information Facebook or YouTube or any of these companies have about you is, is insane and it's going to be absolutely massive. So they're trying to cut it down and do damage control on their own part. In this case, his videos were not taken down and people have been leaving comments on there over, it looks like the last week. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, fucking the internet and comments. I mean, we all, you should know, I hope we all know, don't read the comments. Don't even bother with them. It's a, bastion of horribleness and horrible people this is no exception um you know and this is where you get that kind of sense about what what articles on this subject are really getting at and these people are like well you know he did something bad but this is a barbaric death this is of course i'll just read a quote here uh from a commentator on youtube one of the very enlightened people whether or not he killed a shaman or not he did not deserve a barbaric death from savages like that with only evidence being that some foreign guy was last seen with the shaman, period, period, period. You know, well, obviously we see where this is going. Uh, other people saying it's like, well, he was a white person that was in Peru. Of course he got scapegoated for all this shit. It's like, it, it, this, is, this isn't New York City. This isn't an area where there are 8 billion people in one city, or I'm sorry, 8, sorry, 8 million people in one city. Um, and you can just kind of blend in. If you've got some person who's crazed out from an ayahuasca trip that they didn't understand and were expecting all this other shit from, you're going to know. I mean, these people are going to know. And I mean, it's it's not, you know, this whole idea about rule of law and all the shit, how they should have dealt with the cops or whatever. Look at the history of Peru. Look at the history of South America. Look at the history of Latin America. When, when has any person in power ever come to the defense of any indigenous person really ever unless they had a vested interest in doing so. And in this case, you know, you've got the ultimate in vice magazines, hipster, well-meaning douchebag, liberal leftist or whatever. who's going to save the fucking world come down here. And then, Oh, what did you tell me? He, you're really going to tell me that this nice guy who made YouTube videos kind of lost his mind and got power hungry and then killed somebody. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Of course it does. This happens often. 
this can happen. This is the entire premise of the colonial encounter of the frontier situation. This is what you are entitled to. And these are the people who are holding it from you, whether or not you're well-intentioned, whether or not you're a missionary, whether or not you're a corporation, whether or not you're a logger or a miner or a fucking tourist, this is the colonizing situation. This is the frontier situation. They have something you're entitled for it. Whatever it is, you're entitled to it. And that's what happened. Somebody took something from, he felt he was owed something here and that's what happened. And so to kind of go a little bit deeper on it, um, in, in just that particular regard, from 2009 to 2011, this Lomas worked for a um, really sketchy sounding place called Temple of the Way of Light. Uh, and they offered ayahuasca retreats. I'm sorry, they offer ayahuasca retreats. Um, and uh, just to read a little bit from their site, their website here, each ayahuasca retreat at the Temple of the Way of Light features a balance of female and male healers from the indigenous uh, Shipibo tribe. This incredible team of healers is highly experienced in practicing the ancient art of ayahuasca shamanism. Their ayahuasca ceremonies are supported by highly trained and knowledgeable Western facilitators who act as a cultural, critical cultural bridge between the healers and our guests. So in a sense with this, it's kind of like the answers in the question, right? Uh, knowledgeable Western facilitators. This is, this is another part of the colonial situation. Again, it does not matter what your intents are if this is how it works, if this is the process of it, this is people saying, you know what? Uh, these, these indigenous societies are in a bad way. They're in a horrible way. They've got this thing that I think people can really relate to them. And it's like another version of ecotourism. So for this particular case, this place today, 13 or the not, sorry, again, nothing about this is past tense. Um, they offer a 13-day yoga-intensive ayahuasca retreat. The aim of the practice of yoga is the movement from a state of separation toward that of our inherent connectedness or from dualism towards non-dualism. Similarly, ayahuasca also potentializes our capacity to dissolve boundaries of separation and access the states of deep connection and unified beingness that are the very aims of yoga. The yoga-intensive ayahuasca retreat is designed for yoga enthusiasts who are also interested in the combination of compressive yoga program and the traditional Amazonian plant-based healing practices. This retreat will combine five intimate ayahuasca ceremonies for groups limited to 12 people only with a comprehensive yoga program during the daytime. The next one is October 17th to 29, 2018. In case you're wondering, you could register now for some, uh, there's some open availability. I think that one is somewhere in like the, uh, 1750 range. I forget where I found that. But anyways, um, templeofthewayoflight.org. Uh, if you, if you don't believe me, it's all on here. So, um, the most common, it looks like the most common things they do are the nine day and 12 day ayahuasca retreats that are iron our nine day ayahuasca retreats comprise of five ceremonies with five Shipibo healers and two experienced facilitators. These healings retreats are intense, typically with deep insights and profound restoration taking place in a short amount of time. How efficient. These things happen a lot. The 8-day and the 12-day both have wait lists for June and July, and then for the 12-day is May and June through July. Um, and these things just, you know, looks like they're going on pretty often. There's a three-week deep immersion. So, I mean, you get the point. I mean, these things happen a lot. Um 
they've got all the stuff about preparation integration and there was information about um, needing this like three month recovery from your spiritual quest. Uh, and then, you know, the traditional uh, Shibo plant spirit shamanism. It, there's so much here that it is absolutely insane. Um, and it, it gets hard to talk about any of this calmly uh, because the way that they're talking about all this stuff is, you know, from their, from their vision declaration, uh, part number one, we work with plant medicines to enable and empower human transformation Two, we honor indigenous healing traditions. Ugh. Yeah, for real. Three reciprocity is our core value. Uh, four, our work represents a new paradigm in healing and healthcare. Five, our work includes the most effective tools and modalities. Six, we set the standards for powerful integration practices. Seven, we support research that legitimizes plant medicine healing. Eight, we are agents of change in the Amazon and beyond. I got to read a little bit of this one. Sorry. Uh, the temple is a nexus that attracts luminaries of all kinds and in all fields. We have a network of global change makers, visionaries, spiritual leaders, and entrepreneurs who resonate with our vision and want to contribute to its full manifestation. We have global ambassador programs for former guests who carry the work that is being done here in the world. We also have a global network of temple clinics that includes a diverse network of satellite communities. People have access to plant-based, shamanic, and psycho-spiritual health care in every geographic location, socioeconomic status, and mobility situation. There you go. There's, man, you're, you're struggling with your entrepreneur work. Your, your startup funds aren't going to be what they, what they should be. You're not getting that $8 million contract that you thought you'd get for your fucking app. Here you go. Just go to the Amazon, and these indigenous shamans will teach you how to become more successful in your own life. It's pretty cool, right? You go back to Austin and fucking get some fucking mustache wax. Nine, we set the standards in conscious and responsible business practices. Ten, we offer diverse and accessible programming and offer healing opportunities to those most in need. So full scholarships. We host North American indigenous leaders and First Nation representatives, bringing not only east and west, but also south and north. Oh, God. 11, we honor the divine feminine. 12, we work in service. So they're they're here to help. You know, it's not just that this is a group of people in the West who have their own startup, which we're fucking looking at, which they're calling a temple. It's just some fucking guru mess. Um, you know, this is this is their startup, and they're gonna save you. They they think that they mean well, that they're doing everything, and this is how they're gonna they're gonna save it. And it's all this kind of shit where it's like if it's not us, then who? How are these people going to make money? What's going to happen to their culture if we don't celebrate it? And it's like, you fucking assholes. You commodified this culture to the point where an entire culture boiled down to ayahuasca for you. And there is absolute truth in saying that a lot of these cultures, ayahuasca uh, and, and medicines like that uh, or plants like that do play a very crucial role once you have some degree of domestication. Most times these are horticultural societies. I go into it a good bit in um, my essay, Hooked on a Feeling, and which is in Gathered Remains, also in uh, Black Marine Interview number three. Uh, and I'm going to read a little bit for another reason. But long story short, I mean, this is the, the shaman becomes the first specialist. Uh, and it's not to say shamans are assholes or anything like that. It's just the, the nature of how things work. As a society starts to settle, as a society starts to become uh, dependent to certain degrees on domestic plants or domestic animals, domesticated animals, um, 
there's a bit of distancing and it goes from a kind of healer situation, which you have in most immediate return nomadic hunter gather societies where everybody is involved in the, the healing process directly. Some people have, you know, are more involved in some of the rituals, but it's, it's a horizontal event. It's not a uh, religious ritual as we would know it within civilization. It's not going to a church. It's not doing any of these kinds of things, but the shaman, and again, there can be many, and in most cases, these horticultural societies, a shaman can be somebody who could be transgender or, uh, you know, just the person who's a little more out of sync with the day-to-day kind of activities of a horticultural society or even a, a sedentary hunter-gatherer society or a mounted hunter-gatherer society or something like that. Um, this is just what their main focus is. And they still take part in society and there can be a number of them. And a part of that is about honing this this ordeal. And the more that people are dependent on these circumstances and dependent on being settled in one position, the more powerful it needs to be to have a, a narrative for why they're doing that and going against the innate human urge to want to be moving often um, and dealing with a lot of the issues that can arise when, uh, when humans settle and when humans are forced to become dependent on certain, certain circumstances and lose potentially the most important form of conflict resolution that any human society has ever had. And that is being able to move on. That is being able to this fission fusion kind of thing where you can split off, uh, go from one man to another. That's all extremely important. And I think that you can learn a lot. And this is, this is, again, this is a major focus of my work. Uh, and it, it has been for a very long time and I'll continue to focus on it. We understand the most about domestication, by focusing on it in minutia. That doesn't mean that these delayed return societies, indigenous societies that are sedentary hunter-gatherers, mounted hunter-gatherers, or horticultural societies um, are not worthy of support or anything like that. That's fucking crazy. This is critique. This is trying to understand where things are going and how we got here. Uh, And I think we can look at that story and understand that narrative by focusing particularly on how these things happen because is, this is domestication is not an event. It's a process and you can see it in minutia and then you see how that extrapolates into how our society functions. And obviously we've gone a long way from these uh, Amazonian societies. And there's also a lot of history as well that especially among the Yanami with Epeme, uh, which is a, a similar hallucinogen that, after conquest, after colonization, or during the entirety of it, that the um, the use of these hallucinogens increased greatly. Uh, so, which makes sense because the goal of the shaman is to make sense of situations, to make sense of the realities that you are in. When that reality is colonization, when that reality is warfare, and and just having your your entire world destroyed, that's that's the big thing. That's the big question. It's a lot of demand and pressure on a shaman who would have realistically never been put in that kind of situation and to that extremity. And you add in uh, the introduction of steel tools, machetes and guns. And then uh, you add in uh, sugar, sugary foods, shop foods, store foods, missionary foods, uh, colonization, conquest, the destruction of the land, uh, the destruction of the animals, the slaughter by miners and loggers and everybody else, um, you just have this entirely full scale attack. So 
because these societies turn more towards ayahuasca or turn more towards a peme or something like that, there has been this uh, anthropological focus on those aspects and kind of, you know, showing what makes these societies different in that's caused this overemphasis. And it, it, a lot of this stuff happened in the sixties through even the eighties, uh, particularly into the nineties uh, where the goal well-intentioned of course here was to say what makes these people special. And you could have these arguments and you see this kind of stuff all the time. And it's kind of a, a subtext for a lot of supposedly ecological farming practices that happen in uh, particularly in the Southern hemisphere is this idea that, Hey, these cultures have knowledge and have abilities and these forests have plants within them that could save us. We have the cure for cancer is waiting for us in the Amazon rainforest. So we need to stop deforesting it so we can explore more, talk to these indigenous people more about their medicines, and then they're going to save us again. This kind of bullshit entitlement uh, is exceptionally prevalent, but this is the ongoing issue. And then the way that these people pitch all this stuff, the way that these anthropologists and the way that it, the kind of countercultural pop, whatever uh, douchebags kind of picked up on this stuff was to say, it's like, what's the thing that these people have that we don't, that can save us. And that is a big fucking issue. That is the underlying issue for a lot of this stuff. And even getting back to the kind of this discussion about white privilege and things like that. Um, it has a lot to do with this approach. Who is going to save us? Not how do we save ourselves? Not what are we missing in our lives? But who is going to save us? Who has the thing that is going to make this all better? Whether it's a plant, whether it's a culture, whether it's a dance or it's a ritual. We tend to focus on all these things that people in stress, these communities in stress turn to to help make sense of their world, to help hold their sense of identity as a culture, as a people, as individuals within a society, as individuals in a world under war. And we said, those are the things that make them who they are. And that's what we want. That's what we need to understand. Removed everything. Every fucking thing about these cultures that matters has been removed. This society or this, this fucking temple of the way of light, you would think the entirety of the Shiponio, I'm sorry, the Shibibono people is ayahuasca and that getting money for these things and passing this on is the core of their existence. And it is not, it is specifically not who they are. It matters. It is a part of their culture, but it is not who they are. This is what happens when we reduce a culture to a fucking thing that we can use. And whether it, there's no difference in this and some mining company or an oil company or whoever it is who thinks they're going to go in and take all this shit down and deforest their land and kill their tradition so they can build something else. The basis of this entire conversation is what is happening now. What we have done as colonizers is done and is going to keep continuing in this direction, which is as an anti-civilization anarchist, somebody argues for collapse, a big fucking mistake in my opinion. But all that aside, this is not acceptable. This is not okay. And the backdrop for all of that is that in 2017, almost four environmental defenders were killed a week. And so this is coming from the guardian and it was a joint report with uh, a group called global witness. There's 197 people killed for defending their land, wildlife and natural resources. Um, and this is an ongoing issue. Uh, and there is a direct tie that 
the people in this area are making between the death of Lomas and other defenders. And Lomas was outspoken about what was happening to her land, what was happening to her culture. Uh, So this is just another part of it. It doesn't matter what your intentions are. If you're a miner, a logger, a Canadian tourist who ditched your kids so you can go figure out how to save the world with the hallucinogen from a culture thousands of miles away, it, it doesn't matter. Like this is all the same. This is all colonization. This is all where it comes from. And the underlying core of it is one thing. And that is understanding was where it becomes tragic. This is the entire point of an essay, like hooked on a feeling. And again, another part of my work is trying to say, what is it that we are looking for? And not what is it that capitalists are trying to sell us and things like that. And it's not saying that we've not giving them the credit that they want in terms of saying uh, they've created some need or desire within us, but what are the, the things that we need as a social animals? What are the things that we need as people who have evolved as nomadic hunter-gatherers living in these small band communities and able to move and able to split off and to rejoin and gather uh, and hunt and take part in the world around us? What are we searching for that domesticators have managed to sell us? And this is another false solution. This is another way to keep us going on. This is another way to keep us looking in this direction. And these people go absolutely unironically head over heels into this stuff thinking this is going to be the thing that saves me instead of saying, how do I help myself? How do I do anything about it? And so, uh, there's a rabbit hole here and it's a massive rabbit hole and it is awful. And it's all just these kind of, you know, this is a part of retreats. This is a, this is an industry. Um, and the, that temple uh, got three years of high praise from this thing called Retreat Guru. And it's worth the website is Retreat Period Guru. Um, it's worth looking at this stuff just because it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's totally insane. Uh, this is what people pay to do. And this one guy stood out to me. It's just fucking gross. Uh, Martin uh, Dutoy, which is. South African for their name, of course. Uh, the guy in Spain doing these yoga and tantric workshops to help you release yourself and all this shit. I mean, it's it, it looks like you're just getting paid to get fucked by a guy talking about yoga and tantra and how it's going to save you. And on these packages that are this this one in ongoing packages, seven days, six nights, fifteen hundred euros. Um, and he, this guy's got a website. And it, it, I mean, there's there's tons of these people. There's entire industries of these gurus and how crazy they are. But this guy's got all his things about how he's a kick-ass coach and uh, he's bespoke, professional, successful, and most importantly, he's available for a thousand euros a day. If you come to Spain, you can come and hear about his completed degrees in anthropology and specializing in the study of religion and teacher of meditation, yoga, and tantra, and how he's a higher education certificate as a teacher trainer. He's, he's just going to be the guy who's certainly qualified to take your money and help you find who you are. Uh, and yeah, it looks like a lot of that is through fucking, uh, it's crazy. Um, but again, that one just stood out to me. 
there are many, many options on these websites. And it all boils down to this kind of sickening thing where you have this innate urge, this innate feeling that civilization has taken something from you and has taken something from your life. Uh, and that's how domestication works is trying to file to take that void and to fill it with, with anything that's out there, uh, and to offer anything that serves up meaning, be it work, be it recreation, be it your retreats or your, whatever it is that you have your religion. Um, of course, the easiest drum to beat is apparently the uh, nationalist one uh, as we're seeing the world over. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the consequence of that is that these societies that civilization has disenfranchised and annihilated are the ones who are still picking up the tabs and we still think it's okay that that's a situation. We're still thinking something is going to come along and save us. We still think there's going to be some kind of savior that makes everything okay at the end of this rainbow and there isn't it is not coming and these people their lives aren't built around giving you what you think you need that core of what makes us human is not a hallucinogen in the amazon it wasn't for these people it has never been for anybody it's just how we have torn apart this world and repackaged it and repurposed it so that we can find meaning in anything other than what it means to be a social animal and how we interact with other people, how we interact with the world and what we get from wild communities. And that is insanely tragic. And and knowing that doesn't make anything else about existing within civilization easier, except it gives you a better sense of a target and it gives you a better sense, hopefully, that the path this fucking asshole Woodruff or whatever his name is took is just fucked. It's just this, another part of this whole civilizing process and this ongoing reality of civilization. Uh, and I would hope that would be apparent, but there's the body of an 81 year old shaman woman in Peru right now. Uh, one of apparently 200 or more a year, four or more bodies a day of people who are saying there's something wrong here and what you're doing to us and what you're doing to this world is not okay. And at the base of it, you're, building the civilization you're maintaining the civilization you're maintaining this way of life that gives you no fulfillment and no happiness and you're going to come back to us after all this and you're going to try and tear apart a piece of our culture to give meaning to yourself so you can go on your fucking way as an entrepreneur as a social leader or whatever the only way to respond to this is fuck you fuck you fuck your entitlement you are owed nothing we owe this world we owe these people. And the first thing we can do is stop acting like we can tear apart their culture where we want and take their uh, their traditions or shamanist traditions and say that this is something that we are entitled to. That is not okay at all. And again, this is something I'm going to be coming back to and it's going to be, it's a whole other huge subject. I, I wouldn't think that would have to be. Uh, there is a difference here. There you know, the core of all of our experience as a human, as a social animal comes back to this nature as being a nomadic hunter gatherer. Every single one of us was born a nomadic hunter gatherer. If there is a birthright, that is it. It's within you. Plain and simple. It's all the things that we're looking for are right in front of us. And we can learn a lot from other people. We can learn a lot. And it's unfortunate that we have to, it's really goddamn unfortunate that you have to learn about what it means to be in a functioning human community by reading books um, 
and matching that with your experiences in the wild, your experiences with the world, and then actually reaching out and working with other people in real life, not just through your social networks or whatever. Um, the, that is a whole other thing than saying this other culture has it right, so I'm going to replicate it. There's nothing about anarcho-primitivism or nothing that should be about anarcho-primitivism that would say that you know, if I take cultures or aspects of the culture of the Kong, or if I take aspects of the, the Hadza or something like that and apply them, uh, their rituals in my life, that it's going to improve my condition. It's one thing to say, this is how these things function. It's one thing to say, this is, this is okay. Like these feelings I have are okay. These feelings I have about the world and about dealing with other people and the, the healing properties of singing and dancing are one thing. Taking the songs, taking those names and taking those words and taking the creation stories or whatever stories are told which were meant to be stories which are meant to be open-ended and capable of change and not a bible not something that you're going to boilerplate across the world and just pick up and stamp as a guide that's very different than just saying we're going to take these things and repeat them where this is our solution this is the thing that we've we've looked into and here's where we're at we're just gonna take it it's not okay it's never okay. There's nothing about rewilding that should have to say, I'm going to take these words because I'm dealing with the dead language of, of another culture or something like that. It's not okay. And you don't have to do that. We can build our own myths. We can build that community. We can build all these things, but we have to be aware of the context in which we live. We have to be aware of the civilization in which we live and the, in the greater world and all the consequences that we have within it. And that applies to wildlife as much as it does indigenous communities, as much as it does non-indigenous communities, and much as it has to do with the communities we come from as civilized, modernized people. Um, we have to be aware of this. This is just the context we're in. And we don't do that by just saying we're going to take something else and replicate it and think that we are entitled to that. You are entitled to nothing. And I hope that the responsibility you get from any of this and the responsibility you get from actively taking part in rewilding, actively trying to reintegrate with an existing wild community and a, a place that is struggling, uh, most likely colonized land, and say, what what can I do? And what have I taken part of? And what is my level of complicity in the destruction of all this? And how can I take it forward? How can I move this forward and move away from the entirety of civilization? And that's why I think rewilding and resistance are absolutely tied together. You cannot have one without the other. And the more grounding you feel in the place, the more connection you have with this living, breathing thing instead of just some ideological construct or blueprint that you're taking from one place and trying to apply it to another. Uh, it's, it's about grounding. It's about having that real feeling and that understanding of what is actually happening to this world, not just how do I get from one place to another? How do I get the solution to all the things that are missing in my own life? But what is the complete picture? How have all these things tied together? How have they all interacted? How have I gotten to this point? What are the consequences of it? Where is it headed and what can I do about it? And the most clear way to do that, I think is, is to rewild is to go out and Learn from the land. Learn from everything that's happening to it. Find the damaged places. Find the places that are healing. Find the places that are still under assault and understand what is going on there. And it's it's hard. It's, it's 
almost impossible. And that, again, is why it's a process. That's why domestication is a process. Rewilding is a process. We are wild in our core, but all of that has been filtered and turned and turned against us since we were born. The entire premises of our way of living is built around trying to convince convince us that the one thing that most innate to us doesn't exist and that what we're looking for and what we need as individuals, as a society, is something that comes through domestication. And that is a huge problem. And that's why finding out on your own that you can exist without civilization or finding out that you know this world exists and that there are complex structures within it, that there's complex relationships between all living things, it gives you another way of viewing the world that I think is necessary if we're going to talk about actual resistance to civilization. And that is crucial. And that, again, does not require just looking at every part of the world and saying, what is it from this culture that I'm missing? And how do I take that thing to fill that void within my life so I can become a uh, successful entrepreneur? There's a lot more that I could say on the subject and, and there's a lot more I will. Um, but this this issue really gets at a lot of the entirety of civilization. And I don't think enough can be said about this. Uh, and this is just one case. Um, and it's easy to become numb looking at these and, and trying to isolate these kind of incidences as, as their own cases. And they're just not, this is part of an entire system of, of colonial thinking of and civilized and domesticated thinking um, that it's just, it, this is, this is the thing. This is what needs to be assaulted. This is what needs to be attacked. The infrastructure, everything else, all plays into this underlying principle of we we want these things that make us feel okay, that make us feel right, and we can consume them, and that we are entitled to them, and that the world is full of these things that we can turn into an experience, or we can turn into whatever this fucking guy was looking for, uh, and intent just doesn't matter. What matters is that we have the technology, we have all these things that we've created just to give us that feeling of satisfaction, that impulse and feeling that um, we, we've got it, that we've found a way to carry this on. We've gotten to a point and a threshold beyond where anybody else had previously gotten and that that's okay. This ex- feeling and experience of exploration and frontier life and frontier experience just constantly goes on and the consequences of it are stone-faced murder, genocide, and ethnocide, which I'll return to in a second here. Uh, but first, I'm going to read a little bit from the essay Hooked on a Feeling. Uh, if you have not read it, if you're not familiar with it, as I mentioned, it is in Gathered Remains, my new collection that came out uh, a few months ago, uh, and that's available at blackandgreenreview.org. It is in issue number three, which we still have a bit of. Um, they probably will sell out in the near future. Uh, available at the same place. Uh, but this essay um, was one that I spent, realistically, I think about 14 or 15 years writing, researching, um, before I actually just you know got down to it and finished it for, uh, for Black and Green Review. Uh, but it, is, it was a huge piece of work for me in terms of understanding the relationship between the loss of a community and rise of addiction. Uh, and the direct correlation between 
societies where domestication is present and the use of, you know, particularly even shamans as a, a gateway for um, substances, intoxicating substances as a way to kind of bridge the gap um, where communal healing ceremonies had taken place or rituals had taken place and discussing a little bit about what those look like and then how those were brought through the, uh, in the ritualizing process in relation to medication. Uh, so it covers a lot of ground and this is towards the latter end of the essay where it's talking about things missing within modernity. In fact, the subject header for this section is modernity and other distractions. The search for extremes and getting high has led to a flood of Western hipsters seeking ayahuasca for a new high. This has resulted in the deaths of European and American teens from using synthetic alternatives for the drug native to South America during sessions with faux shamans. Not to be outdone, Vice Magazine wasn't going to miss out on this new trend, paying $230 per session with a shaman in Berlin, selling the trip as horribly as possible. Quote, For late 30-something affluent vegans who don't go to clubs anymore and who spend Christmas in India so they don't have to visit their parents, it's about as hip as a partner swapping, end quote. Confirming their own expectations after elaborating on the violent sickness that comes hand-in-hand with this intoxicant, quote, In a way, it takes you back to your original essence in nature, and that's no bad thing if, like me, your regular connection with nature is watching your tomato plants slowly die on the windowsill each summer, end quote. Have no fear, that's not the only perk. Quote, oh, and seeing your dick as tall as a building rendered from solid, impenetrable stone is something an insecure young boys who grow into secretly insecure men need to use, need to see at least twice. End quote. Quote, it is a measure of our general deprivation, states Barbara Ehrenreich, that the most common referent for ecstasy and usage today is not an experience, but a drug, MDMA, that offers fleeting feelings of euphoria and connectedness. End quote. For most of us, these extremes may come as unfamiliar. We can see them from the safety of a distance. We can judge and we can lie to ourselves. The dopamine response that heroin users become addicted to lacks scrutiny with more acceptable social behaviors. As we mindlessly swipe the screen of a smartphone looking for an update, the mind releases dopamine in ways similar to receiving good news. The hit of dopamine that comes from getting likes on Facebook fools our brain into believing that loved ones surround us. A new trend has arisen in cities where there are cuddle parties or snuggle buddies. These are explicitly non-sexual interactions where the purpose is simply to be touched. One company offers the service for $80 an hour in sessions up to 10 hours. Advertising the service as a cure-all for everything from depression to aging, there is no question that the oxytocin released in our brains when we are in contact with another being creates a sense of joy. But this industry is kind of a sad callback to the healing rituals we opened with. There are moments where our search for community comes so close in form and function to those healing rituals, but deprived of context, it all becomes a kind of perversion. What we want, what we need is right in front of us. We're all too damaged to reach out. Paying for a service is far more in the comfort zone that has been provided to us, which is consumable. Addiction is a pattern behavior, a self-reinforcing cycle. Strift of place, dopamine, and its feelings of joy within our bodies becomes another drug. Psychologist Amy Banks explains our altered relationship with dopamine. Quote, In an ideal world, one that understands the certainty of healthy relationships to health and wellness, the dopamine reward system stays connected to human connection as the primary source of stimulation. Unfortunately, we do not live in this ideal world. We live in a culture that actively undermines this 
precious dopamine relationship connection. We raise children to stand on their own two feet while the separate self is an American icon of maturity. It is making us sick. This disconnection is set for addiction as we search for other sources of dopamine. The other sources look shockingly similar to the list of common cultural complaints. Overeating and obesity, drug and alcohol abuse, consumerism, chronic, chronic hooking up. Not only do these addictive destructive behaviors get paired to the dopamine reward system, but they create a feedback loop of isolation that pushes people towards more addictions. End quote. The problem for domesticators is that we're still human. We're still animals. We always have been, and we always will be. As depressing and hopeless as the exploration of addiction and civilization can feel, the common thread throughout all of this is that we never give up. The hunter-gatherer within us is not dead. We are captive animals. Distracted though we may be, it is experience of our emptiness, the depravity of our search for that connection that keeps programmers awake at night. Removed as we are from the world that we are meant to inherit it, our, our want for community struggles against all odds, and it is the underlying spirit that may ultimately bring the end of civilization. And that is from Hooked on a Feeling and Gathered Remains. So that last point in that essay is, again, I think a, a major point through this entire episode. And uh, the closer to home something seems or the closer to home something feels, uh, and the more that that becomes commodified through these guru retreats, through you know whatever it is that we're seeing. You know, you see it with, with movements like paleo or even you could, you could even say religion, um, things like that. The more that you see this this innate need for community being churned and commoditized uh the worse it is and again the the ayahuasca shaman is exactly that so we're gonna switch gears a little bit here um not very much as as it is uh to talk about the ache and so the ache so to make a quick cut here, this episode ended up going on really long, uh, so I cut it up into part one and part two, which you just heard was part one, part two, wherever you got this, hopefully it will be there as well. Uh, if lost, uh, go to blackandgreenreview.org, uh, and under the podcast tab, the link to the second part, uh, and all previous episodes, uh, just the general house kind of cleaning kind of stuff. The newest publications from Black and Green Press are my book, uh, Gathered Remains. And then we have Black and Green Review number five, Anything Can Happy by Freddie Perlman. John Zerzan's new books, Time and Time Again, uh, are all available at blackandgreenreview.org under the shop purchase tab, whatever it's called. Uh, number six of Black and Green Review is still very much in the works. So if you have interest in submitting, Go to the submissions page on the Black and Green Review page. Uh, check that out and uh, send us an email, send us a letter if you want to be in touch about something you're working on for that. The deadline right now is September 1st. Hopefully not everything comes in just then. We have a pretty extensive editorial process. So uh, if you're interested in contributing, please send an email there. If you have anything you want to say to me about the show, comments, questions, or anything you'd like to respond to, in the podcast, send an email to blackandgreenpress at gmail.com, or you can send a letter to Black and Green, P.O. Box 402, Salem, Missouri 65560. And on the podcast tab, you'll also see that there is a link for Patreon or PayPal. Uh, Patreon is monthly donations, PayPal is one time donations and recurring donations. 
uh, any support that we get for the program in terms of uh, finances helps a lot. goes directly towards all the black and green pages, and it's a very expensive endeavor. Uh, so it goes directly to getting books printed and making sure that everything gets out there. Um, but also the kind of administrative side of doing the podcast and everything else and all the other projects and keeping things afloat. So any donations are a huge help talking about the podcast, talking about the books, reading the books, talking about anything in real life, uh, having myself or John Zerzan come out and speak. All those things are hugely helpful. So uh, if you can, that's much appreciated. And uh, anything else? Yeah, just give us a shout at blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. And check out part two of this episode. Thanks.